Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand that had an impact on you? Levi's, the laundrette commercial. Defined the 80s in the UK and completely changed the world of advertising. I don't know if you remember, but they had those, the extraordinary music that, uh, and I guess it heralded the world of integrated marketing because it also extraordinary music that made it into all the top tens around the world. I still love that commercial and that brand for that reason. I still wear Levi's. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. My guest today in the CMO podcast is Fiona Carter, who just recently left her position as the chief brand and advertising officer for AT&T to join Goldman Sachs as their first ever CMO. AT&T, as you know, is a giant company, $180 billion in sales. It's a communication and entertainment company. It began 144 years ago with Alexander Graham Bell's invention of the telephone. Fiona hails from a very small village in England and is a graduate of Oxford University. She has a storied career in advertising, including 11 years at BBDO, working with clients like my alma mater, P&G, GE, and Bank of America. Fiona has been a leading voice in an industry effort to improve the way women and girls are portrayed in the media, and she has stepped up as well as any marketing leader during the health, economic, and social crisis we are now living in. It's about action, not ads, says Fiona. This podcast was recorded a week before Fiona announced she was leaving AT&T. This is my conversation with Fiona Carter. Fiona, welcome to the CMO Podcast. I'm in San Diego. You're in Montauk. We're still in the middle of a pandemic. But I want to first talk about you as a reader. I, le- I learned in my research on you that you are, a vor- you are a voracious reader and that you studied French literature at university. So I'd, mm-hmm. like, I'd like to know... In these wild times we are in, what are you reading now? <laughs> in these wild times? Well, um, I grew up a reader because I grew up in the 70s and 80s in the UK, and I grew up in a tiny little countryside village in Suffolk called Brandeston. Uh, it has three claims to fame, which is it has one pub, it has one corner shop, And Ed Sheeran went to the school that is in that village, not then, but much later on. And so all I had to do was read. And so I was the kid that went to the local public library and I would take six books out every Saturday and I would have read three by the time my mum had done uh, the shopping. And then I would be just desperate for more books to read. So that was the way I passed my time in those quiet times in the 70s and 80s. So I I read fiction because I studied uh I studied French literature 
And I have to tell you, I'm not a great one for reading business books. That's my flaw. I don't really enjoy enjoy them at all. But I love gorgeous, gorgeous fiction. It tends to be British. And to directly answer your question, uh, I am reading easy reading right now in during the pandemic. I found that I didn't really want anything that was taxing or too mentally stressful. So I've actually just embarked on, uh, it's a series that was actually recommended to me by Anne Finucane, who was one of my clients at Bank of America. And it's by uh, Daniel Silver. And it is the Gabrielle Alon um, uh, series of spy novels. And uh, he makes his way, he's an art restorer who is also a deadly assassin and makes his way around Europe um, avenging uh, Israel and uh, those that choose to do harm to the Western world. And I'm on book five. That sounds good. It is good. I love, I love, sometimes I just love easy reading, you know, equally I'll go and read uh, Ian McEwan or something yeah. more challenging, but uh, yeah, I have, I have no issue. High and low. I say in culture, high and low. I've taken an opposite tact in these times. I just re- finished the end of the myth, uh, which is a book by Greg Grandin about um, kind of what's going on in America, the end of the frontier mythology, the, the, big, the wall now is taking over. So it won the Pulitzer Prize for history. So I just finished that. It, it's heavy and it's thoughtful. And I actually do recommend it. It puts a lot of what we're going through now in context, mm-hmm. in historical context. But anyway. Well, you- I, applaud, I applaud you for having the mental resilience to do that. <laughs> right. Well, I'm getting my stress out in other ways. We can talk about that <laughs> later. Do you have a favorite book of all time? No. 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 I mean, if pushed, maybe Pride and Prejudice, Jane Austen. Mm-hmm. I just remember being so delighted by that book and uh, loving the heroine and loving her independence. Uh, But not really. I just think because great authors come around constantly, there's always more to read. It's like I can't name a favorite movie. Yeah, right. So you didn't watch television as a kid, more reading. No, no, no. I watched lots of TV as a kid because there was nothing to do. There was reading, TV, and sometimes my mom would take me out to the theater. And then otherwise, we were let out at 8.30 in the morning on a weekend and told not to come back until 6 p.m. And we just ran around the countryside like in a little gang, making forts and running down English country paths and just being as free as you couldn't possibly imagine these days. Beautiful. So you saw lots of P&G ads as a kid. This is probably why you got into advertising, right? You saw Ferry and Daz and Ariel. Yes. (laughs) Yes, I did. I did. Uh, they, they weren't the most creative ads back then. They've gotten a bit better. That's funny. They, those are some of the brands of my childhood. Yeah. 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 I remember sinks full of, I think for fairy, sinks full of um, uh, lots of bubbles and then hands in those plastic gloves. And then there was always a side-by-side test. I think they dribbled the fairy liquid. Yes. down the plate, and it would cut through the grease. Yeah, that's it. For those who did not grow up in the UK, that is sort of the dawn of the UK. It's a, it's a that's right. dish detergent, yeah, yeah. Hand, yeah. hand washing. Listen, I want to uh, get back to our conversation. I want to start, really, our chat with your Twitter bio. And I'm going to mm-hmm. read it for our listeners. You are a fierce advocate of equality and transparency, lover of creativity, culture, and family. Now, that's... Uh, Wonderful, pithy statement. And I want you to talk about, in light of that, how have these past several weeks especially been for you? 
Yes. Um, well, extraordinary, like for everybody, right? Um, we left uh, Brooklyn, where we live, on March 12th. And I will say, being a New Yorker, I think um, many of us, uh, I think I just felt that, uh, like many New Yorkers, that actually our lives were under threat. We realized that we were at the epicenter of COVID-19. And I don't think it's exaggerating to say that um, everybody in New York felt like their lives were in danger in some way. And that was a, um, to have that feel feeling pervasively, I think was very new for us. New Yorkers had survived 911. Um, but although that we changed our behavior, we didn't feel in immediate danger all the time. So that's the first, I think, first comment I'll make. I think there's been huge emotional distress, obviously, across the world, but certainly as a New Yorker, uh, I think all of us are processing more, more trauma than you might imagine. However, New Yorkers are resilient, and I was one of the privileged few that got to go and work from home. And, you know, I, many New Yorkers did not. Certainly there are many essential workers uh, that had to be out there on the front lines. And, you know, even at my company, we have uh, an extraordinary amount of our workers who were out on the front lines. So I'm very conscious of the privilege that I ran away to my little beach shack, which is a second home in Montauk, and I had peace and quiet. And my husband and I had the privilege of being able to work and I have to tell you, I don't know if it's been the same for you, but it's never been busier. Uh, as a leader at a large company, we had so many decisions in front of us, both the ones that immediately pertain to my role. How do you advertise? How does a brand show up? How do you market during these times? But also, how do we put our employees first, 250,000? Um, what are the, uh, do we have enough uh, PPE? Just so many decisions coming fast and thick. Um, and that was uh, an, just an incredible experience to go through as a leadership team, but actually a privilege because I was safe at home. And, you know, I have two kids, a 13-year-old boy and an 11-year-old girl, and they turned out to be incredible at distance learning. They were independent and conscientious and set to it immediately. And I would just say on the plus side of things, I think COVID-19 taught us some of the uh, lost arts of being a family unit. We're, we've always been a great family unit of four, but um, it taught us to cherish and spend time and do more of perhaps what we should have been in the past, which is I'm sure like you, we both my husband and I, we travel all the time. My kids have intense sports schedules and we just never took the peace and quiet to actually be with each other and enjoy each other. So I think a bonus has been, I bet everyone has said this, but a bonus has been the family dinner every night. And my kids have loved that. And we've had longer conversations, uh, more time together, more loving, more hugging, uh, more board games. And in our particular home, my kids have turned out to be incredible cooks. So my son is 13. He loves cooking. So he was cook he's cooking two or three dinners a night and epic amounts of baking. And uh, I have really enjoyed that. So the quieter, more peaceful side of family life. And I think at the end of the day, that is uh, something that I hope I don't lose, you know, if and whenever we return to some kind of normal. Um, and, you know, I'll just comment because it's now at uh, some time in June. But obviously, in the past few weeks, we've also um, seen 
you know, the the uprising over the various deaths and um, police brutality. And I found that, um, I'm sure like you, I found that very um, challenging to metabolize. Like I've, um, uh, it, it, was so, it was so shocking to see finally uh, many across America rise up and say enough is enough. And I've, I found it invigorating, um, but, uh, you know, also kind of challenging to process to see that because I was away from, I was away from my city and I was away from the protests which were happening only a few blocks away from where I live. And I actually felt like I wasn't doing my part and I wanted to be out there. Um, and what was very touching was my 11-year-old daughter. We, we were watching the news together and she was like, we should be there, mummy. Mm. We need to be out there and fighting for equality. Um, and, and I really you know, feel that I haven't done my part. Um, it provoked interesting conversations at work. So I actually took the opportunity to talk to my teams about it. Uh, and uh, it's interesting when you start the conversation, you can actually feel the room stiffen. Mm -hmm. And the room almost says, are you going there? Are you, are you going to talk about this? And I felt it was very important as a leader to talk about uh, clearly the pain um, and the sadness and the trauma that many of our black colleagues had been hiding, but now we're able to, to open up. Um, I talked about what I was doing to try to learn more and what I was trying to do to actually take actions wherever I can. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, taking micro actions. I believe, although there are many problems for society, large societal problems for us to change uh, and try and solve, uh, often it can seem so intimidating when you're trying to change the world. Uh, but I think you've just got to put one foot in front of the other and remember that each tiny micro action adds up. And it's when you get the collective of actions that significant systemic change really comes about. So we talked a lot in my team about, um, you know, what is a what is a micro action and what can it look like and, and you know, what can you control? And we we've done a lot of work. Um, I talk about being a champion of equality, but I'm uh, uh, at AT&T. I'm the co-chair of the See Her initiative at the Association of National Advertisers. I talk about that a lot. For our listeners, if they're not aware of it, tell them what the See Her initiative I did want to get to this later in the podcast, but let's do it now. Tell them a bit about what the See Her initiative is. And then I'm interested in what you're learning from your micro actions on the bias and racism issue. Sure. So the, the See Her initiative uh, was founded by uh, three women, along with the Association of National Advertisers, I think it's three or four years ago. Um, and it's really there to uh, address and deliver the accurate portrayal of women and girls in advertising and media. And there are multiple statistics. Unilever in particular does a great set of research around how women and girls feel that they, they simply aren't represented appropriately in media and advertising. And it, uh, it was formed really to try to change that. And there was the belief that you can shape and change culture uh, when you bring, bring big advertisers together, because the advertising is so important in shaping the vision of who women and, of how women and girls see themselves and what they think they can be in the future. Um, 
So it was founded about three to four years ago. Um, I'm so passionate about the topic individually that when I saw that and I joined AT&T, I had a bit of an epiphany and I realized that uh, we have such a large budget, we're one of the largest advertisers in the US, that I could take my personal passion and actually have real impact. Um, and I think what's great about See Her is it gives you very practical tools as an, an advertiser. You can measure your advertising to see if you are uh, accurately portraying women and girls. And then what is great about those measurements is you will slowly prove out, as every advertiser who has done this has proven, that actually diversity and gender equality is simply good business because those ads that have a high gender equity measure for the GEM score actually perform better across every array of communication or um, business metrics. So it's a great driver of business growth. I think our, our mutual friend, Mark Pritchard, talks about being a, a force for good and a force for growth, and, mm -hmm. and it proves that out. And there's a core collective of advertisers that come together, and uh, they're, they're, they're fueled by a personal fat passion for this. And we have spoken to all of the networks and we've been able to change some of the programming and the pilot process. We've been able to change how agencies are staffed. We have been able to change uh, the number of directors that are used, whether they're female, male, or even people of color, black. Um, and many of us have scorecards that allow us to measure all of that. And I think uh, you ask about micro actions. I think creating a scorecard. So what is the representation both of gender and ethnicity in my own team, in agencies' teams, in the number of the kinds of directors, the production companies, on-camera talent. You can, you can scorecard every measure across the advertising development process, and then you make process, and then you make significant progress. And I think that's something that is under the control of any advertiser or any any marketer. That's an example of a of a micro action. Um, more personally, uh, uh, I have been trying, uh, kind of regardless of the large HR systems that we have within our company, which by the way, at AT&T are hugely geared towards diversity and inclusion. Um, but for example, I've asked my teams to always ensure that we have um, an equal candidate slate and that they are equally and fairly represented both gender and ethnicity. I think that's a, another action that one can take. You can consciously think about these issues as you pick candidates and you promote. And, and then just more person, personally, the other day, I uh, handed over my Instagram and Facebook to one of my black female colleagues. It's a campaign called hashtag share the mic now. And basically it uh, asks all white women to take their social platforms, hand them over, let your black uh, friend or colleague use your platform to amplify their own platform and send out their own messages. So. Uh, my colleague, Angela, um, she made many, many posts, much better and more creative than mine. <laughs> and she told all of my friends about her life as a black professional. She told all of her, all of my friends about what it's like to be a black pregnant woman and actually how the inequity in the medical system and how black women tend not to be believed when they say they're in pain or they're hurting during pregnancy. And it was eye-opening. And uh, maybe I've done myself a disservice because I have so many marketers in my 
following who are friends. They're all like, you're amazing. And I'm like, Angela, don't take another job. I mean, I'm, I'm opening my platform up to you, but don't leave. We need you. So wow. I think that's a good example of a microaction that, you know, it, it has a genuine impact out in the world. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. Beautiful stories. Fiona, I want you to stay on this for a moment. You, you've, you've got significant experience on the agency side and now on the client side for the last five years. The data shows that clients have made more progress on diverse, diversity and inclusion than agencies. Mm-hmm. So what kinds of things, there was just a letter that 600 black leaders and agencies wrote about the change needed. I think it was a yep. fabulous letter. How can we make deeper change there? on the agency side. I know clients have a role, but we really, we've been at this a long time. Clients are doing better than agencies. What can we do? Yeah, well, I th- first of all, I really believe in the power of convening. So I, th- I think we need as advertisers to bring the agency folks together and say it's very, very important to us. Individual advertiser mar- advertisers and marketers have done that. But I think it may well be time to have a summit and state just how important it is to us, number one. Number two, I think we have to help um, agencies. Uh, What I've observed is that at a corporation, there are systems and rigor and discipline around human capital management. It's not even seen as HR. Uh, those companies know how to manage talent and there are processes and tools and programs and it's very programmatic and therefore it's very systemic and you see the change that you want to drive because it's measured and I, I've, I've just observed you know what one of the joys of an agency is it is just a much looser culture and so I think there's something to be learned I think we can teach um, and I think we can share some of our practical tools with agencies because I've not traditionally seen that. I'm five years out that may disagree with me, but I think there's something to the rigor and, and system of programs. And then finally, I just think it's the business case, which stands restating, which is we have to, uh, to be most successful and drive the business growth we want, which every company is in search of growth. And in a COVID world where the economy is under stress, growth and business success is going to be under stress. We need all the tools that we can get. And I, and I think agencies need to fully, fully understand that um, in order to serve those audiences with the, the brands that they look after, they need to fully represent them in every part of the advertising ecosystem. And you, and that is the way to really effective advertising. It's actually key to their to their business. And I'm not sure that we've done a good job of stating the business case collectively as an as an advertising industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with you. By the way, 
I agree with you. And I think we could help the agencies a lot and, uh, and I'm all in for it. Yeah. 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 Me too. But I will say that they're, uh, I think they're realizing and they're trying. Yeah, no, I do. You know, I agree. Change, change takes time. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Before we go further into your role at AT&T as chief brand and advertising officer, I want to back up a bit and talk about how you came to that. Uh, you grew up in the small town, which you already talked about. And you earned your master's in French literature at Oxford. Then you had six roles in six organizations over 22 years, mostly ad agencies in London and New York. And then about five years ago, you jumped to the client side to AT&T. Did you know back in Oxford that you wanted to work in advertising because that seemed to be your first job? Now, was it because that was available or was it intentional? No, I mean, I often joke. <laughs> I often joke. So back in the days, I don't know if you all can remember this, back in those days, you literally went into a building that was called the careers office. It was a physical building and you went in and it had shelves alphabetically num uh, listed and it had folders, certainly in Oxford, with all the careers you could possibly have. And uh, I had a four-year course, and about three years in, I was like, ooh, holy smoke, what am I going to do after Oxford? And I went in, and I often joke that maybe it's just that advertising began with A, and I didn't have the <laughs> fortitude to get much further through the shelves. Um, uh, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Why did I get into it? I think I got into advertising because... Uh, in many ways, uh, it was a clean slate in front of me. My parents were teachers. They were working class, made good. And I had no role models in the corporate world. Literally, I didn't come from a family of lawyers. I didn't come from a family of doctors. I didn't come from a family of CFOs. So uh, I had it all before me. And, and I had no direction set for me. But my mother had told me one thing, which was you should be independent. You should be financially independent. And I'm very obedient. So I knew that I wanted to have a career and deliver for her. And um, uh, I think I just loved this idea and this notion of creativity. I, I had grown up reading uh, Vogue magazine which came every month. And I loved the idea of glamour and creativity and style and culture. And, uh, and I loved TV and I loved uh, movies. And remember in the UK, there's no really any, there's no Hollywood, there's no movie making business. So the closest to creativity really was advertising. But I knew that I wasn't a creative per se, and I wanted to be in business and I had to go be financially independent. And I think it was that beautiful, collision of creativity and business that is advertising at its best. Why was it important for your mom to say that she wanted you to be financially independent? Oh, um, so my mom grew up in the north of England. Uh, she was the daughter of um, a house painter. And uh, she grew up, she was born just before World War II. She grew up in the, the 40s and the 50s. And it was a very uh, and still is, some might argue, it was a very strictly class Division, divided system in, in the UK. And uh, she was working class and she got into university. She got into London University, but her family would not let her go because that's not what a girl of that class did. And she went to train to be a teacher and she always regretted it. And I think she always felt unfulfilled. And she talked to me very honestly and openly about that. 
And she married relatively late at the age of 23. Mm. She had her baby, uh, one child, me, very late at the age of 33. So she was always slightly bucking the box that she had been put in. But I think, you know, she just talked openly to me about her frustrations and how she'd been limited by society and societal stereotypes. So you started in advertising to, because of the creativity, commerce, and to be financially independent. You stuck with it. You moved mm-hmm. to a couple agencies, and you were in London at the time, I assume, and then moved to New York. Yes. Tell us about that. Why did you move to New York, and how did that go? <laughs> so I don't know why I moved to New York, except I've had a burning desire to live in New York since I was about 11. And my mother says that it is the Irish side of me, because the Irish always wanted to come to America. Um, As I look back, I think it was just, uh, uh, I have two observations. One, I hear that if you don't feel like you fit in where you grew up, you end up in New York. And so there was a bit of that. I always felt different uh, growing up uh, wherever I, you know, wherever I was, uh, certainly in that little country village. I felt like I wanted more. I felt like I was more urban. Um, I didn't feel uh, quite like I fit into that little village. Um, and I think the other reason is I had grown up on these incredible movies and films that painted a picture of this exciting place, Woody Allen's Manhattan Honestly, even, I mean, it's a slightly naughty film, but like Nine and a Half Weeks has the most gorgeous pictures of Soho when it was an mm-hmm. artist's lair. And I had my, like my, I desired to have my first ever little apartment there. And I had a little loft there. I think it was culture that took me there. And I was just super excited to get there. I, um, I was working in a, an agency that I don't know if the Americans would know. It was called Low Howard Spink. Uh, in London. And uh, it was founded by Frank Lowe. And I loved it because it believed that creativity was a competitive advantage. And it was a small agency that acted like a big agency, notorious for the highest um, creative standards, often fired clients if they weren't creative enough for them. Uh, Frank Lowe is a famous flamboyant figure in British advertising. And in the 80s and 90s, advertising, new TV ads were weighted upon with bated breath. This was the time of Levi's and BBH and Lowe. And these ads were extraordinary. And they made the whole nation wake up and talk the next day. And they were beautiful, craft, beautifully crafted pieces. And uh, I loved that world. And I was working at uh, Low on um, Tesco, which was, uh, it's actually a supermarket. It was a very, very successful supermarket, but we managed to have uh, created a campaign. It was called Every Little Helps, and it both won the Can Lion, somewhat notoriously, but it won the Can Lion. It was voted by the public as the nation's most favorite advertising. And it won the IPA Grand Prix for most effective advertising with an econometric model that proved for every one pound sterling of spend, you created, you know, X percent rise in revenue and profits. Um, And to me, that was like the pinnacle of great advertising, creativity as a commercial advantage. I loved it. But I was always impatient and I just wanted to work on a broader, bigger, grander scale. The UK can get a little myopic. It can get quite proud of itself. You know, it's a 
it's a small island with a huge impact or has had a huge impact around the world, but it's still a small island. And you'll find this funny. Lowe said to me, if you're not going to work for us in the UK, we don't care where you work. This was pre-global business. So they had a global network and they did not refer me to Lowe in New York. So I just had to go about finding my own job over there. And I was, you know, I just asked friends. I had an American friend in advertising. She referred me to Darcy. I snuck over. I remember I flew over. I, I took a sickie and I flew over and then flew back the next day, oh having my. just taken one sick day. Yes. And uh, I interviewed and I got a job and um, I came over. And you asked, how did it go? It was a shock. So one, uh, it's true, if you can make it in New York, you can make it anywhere. My social security number got stolen by somebody in the social security department. And so I couldn't get paid for months and months and months. And I had to be paid in the UK and take money out. I had to persuade a friend of a friend to guarantee my apartment because even though I had a mortgage in the UK, that didn't count on my financial record. So it's true. New York tries to put up every barrier and prevent you from actually landing there. It's like a test to see if you're a real New Yorker. So New York was a challenge. And then uh, I'll be interested in your reaction to this, actually. Darcy was a challenge for me. Uh, uh, I was an account handler. And in the UK, the account handler leads the relationship and is expected to be as strategic a thinker as the planner and as creative as the creative and in actual fact, the account handler presents and sells all the creative work. Mm -hmm. And at Low in London, you got marked as an account handler by the head of production on how many campaigns you sold and how quickly. And they said in London, they, they would say to the creatives, find the account handlers who can sell the work because that way you will become famous and you will get on TV. And so these partnerships were born. So you're just much more invested in the advertising and the, the very best advertising as a British account handler. So you can imagine my surprise when I came to the US and it was a very different job description. Oh, that's tough. Who was your client, the first one? Always. Oh, wow. Yes. And your agency yeah. basically shut down. Yes. Well, I didn't last that long, actually. Okay. I got brought over, always was um, struggling. And I don't know if you remember, but there was a famous um, campaign for always where they used men. That was not something I was a part of. And so the relationship was breaking down. The relationship was breaking down between Darcy and, uh, and uh, always. And uh, I think that the management from Darcy came in and went, who is this young looking blonde lady from the UK? Why did she get brought in? And they put someone in more senior than me who was lovely. Um, and then they didn't really need the both of us. So I actually, I lost my job at Darcy and I, you know, I've been there for a year and I lost my job and I was like, what? But this was supposed to be my new future. What a year you had. Yeah. I was a new CMO at P&G at the time, just uh -huh. named global marketing officer. And in my first few months, Darcy shut down. Yes. And we, we had 33 brands at Darcy. So yep. one of my jobs in my first, when I was just learning the ropes was you have to reassign 33 brands. Yeah, that's a lot. That was a lot. So that was my, uh, I don't know, that was my testing time, I guess. So, 
So I don't know. We may have we may have passed each other in the halls. Who knows? Back then, you landed at BBDO. Now BBDO is you know one of the most awarded, most creative organizations in the world, and has been that way for a long time. So it's a pretty extraordinary organization and a pretty extraordinary culture. What could our clients who are listening to us right now learn from how to be a great client to inspire wonderful creativity from everything you learned at BBDO? <laughs> um, that's a great and very loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. You know, it is so hard to be a great client and get great work, uh, and mostly for the cl- on the client side, honestly. Um, Why do you say that? Why do you say that? Because I think the I think the corporate structures and systems inhibit getting to great work. They are there to execute at scale, but the truth is, I think to to be cl- to land on really really great work is you need you need a, a couple of things. One, you need uh, as few people as possible involved in the work. <laughs> Uh, and I think every agency will tell you, uh, please don't have um, decisions and approval by consensus. Tell us who the one voice is and let us work directly with them and let us mold the work and let let us let everybody understand that a creative idea, an original creative idea is rare and fragile. And it needs nurturing and it needs love and it needs molding, but it can't have that from too many hands. Uh, you, you can't have many, many hands molding the clay to make a sculpture. And that's just very, it's very hard to create that set of circumstances. Um, two, I think you need a really, really clear brief. And I think, uh, Strategy is so hard, both at an agency and at uh, an advertiser, and really synthesizing what you believe the strategy is and what the one thing is that you want to say is a craft and a discipline that I'm still learning. Uh, and trying to get to that, that the pithiness of exactly what we want to say without throwing the, the kitchen sink into it, I, you know, it's such a is such a high bar, and I think we we as advertisers consistently fail at that. Uh, you you at PNG may have created a whole process and a way of marketing which makes you good at it, but many of us are less good. Um, so I so I think great single minded strategy is important, and then third, I think bravery. And I and I I've often found myself kind of the outsider, the outside voice in a corporation and you know having the having the bravery to think differently from others and to realize that the value is in you thinking differently from others um having the bravery bravery to see the seed of an idea and to nurture it and help it bring it to life and having the bravery to do something different and then sometimes, you know, having the bravery to accept that it may not always be successful and that sometimes you have to fail to get to the very best. Uh, those, that's sort of the three pieces of advice I would, I would give to advertisers. You handled that well, Fiona. <laughs> you were at BBDO for 11 form, you know, formidable years with doing some work for great clients. And then you went to a client. Yes. So tell us about that decision. Pretty big leap. Oh, you're yes. 22 years in one industry, and you went to the client side, which is not an easy transition. 
Right. And you went to a big client and you went to a BBDO client. So tell us about that decision and what can we learn from it? That's a uh, complicated story. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you just have to jump into it. I'll tell you why it's complicated. So um, I had been head down working on the biggest brands and I uh, BBDO is unique and it had a lot of very senior leaders that didn't necessarily fit into a traditional management structure. And I was one of those. I could work, walk into the global CEO's office and he trusted me and I ran a very big P&L, but I didn't appear on the masthead of the hierarchy of management. And... Um, I I was in the middle of 18 months of nightmare pitching. Gillette might have been part of that. And it was really hard and I was losing energy and I was pitching and not necessarily winning. And um, I, I think it was very close to Christmas time and I was um, at an offsite trying to solve a particularly difficult brand problem. And my planner... Uh, left the room, went next door where there was a lot of noise. And he came back. He said, Fiona, it's really funny. There's a group of uh, very famous women in advertising who are all gathering to work out how they can uh, propel each other's careers into management. And he said, and you're not there. You're here. And I said to myself, yeah, I'm an idiot. I'm working, not networking. And I realized that I'd been working so hard that I'd almost become invisible in the industry. And that was to a detriment to my career. Like I had been head down, I hadn't created a personal brand out in the industry. And yet I had kind of, I was knocking on the glass ceiling at BBDO. BBDO had um, an overabundance of talent and there just wasn't enough room for all of us. And so it was at that point after we finished that pitch that I actually took a year off and I went into BBDO and I said, I'm taking uh, a sabbatical. And they said, well, we'll support you in that. Don't leave our family. We don't want you out on the competitive market. And I was like, I'm taking it because I'm just working and my career isn't proceeding and I want more for my career. And we had a discussion about, well, what do you want? And I was like, well, I'd like to run a region or be a CEO. And they were like, but we love you managing the really difficult, big, complicated clients. I was like, that's not what I want to do. So I went away for a year and uh, I came back and they offered me a big, difficult client to run again. I was like, did you not listen to what I said? I want a big step in my career. And... um I have to say all of this with affection because I love BBDO. Um, And I realized that uh, my career wasn't going to continue in the upward swing that I wanted, the new challenges I wanted. So um, I went out on a limb and I took advantage of something that had happened in those 18 months of pitching, which is I had been in many meetings with John Wren, who's the global CEO of Omnicom. And I thought, dang it. I know he is the most brilliant, intimidating global CEO of a holding company, but I'm going to call him and I'm going to ask for a bigger, better opportunity. And what can happen? He can only not answer. So I called him and to his credit, he offered me a chief operating officer role at Omnicom running a portfolio of 14 advertising and branding agencies, including uh, good be. So it was a, it was a beautiful portfolio and it was my job to, to help them optimize them, uh, help them collaborate and so forth. 
it was part of the new structure. And it was sort of at that moment that my career catapulted into a different platform, really. And I became more noticeable, perhaps because I had a C in my title. And uh, it was then that uh, Headhunter, who's actually a famous advertising lady, I don't know, she came from BBDO too, Lynn Side. I don't mm -hmm. know if you know Lynn Side. She was at Hydric. And she hand-plucked me out and said, you fit the picture for AT&T. Uh, AT&T need a creatively minded person who understands agencies, can build brands, but understands real marketing to drive business. And they definitively want an outside-in person. They want an outside-in thinker. Uh, and you have to be able to fit and walk the halls of the corporation, but be uh, provocative and stretch their thinking uh, and bring specialist talent that they don't have. And she was the one who identified me and honestly, great tribute to her, made it happen for me. They were in Dallas and I was like, I'm, I live in New York. And so we had, she was like, just go, just try. Uh, and so you keep having interviews. And I loved, I fell in love with the brand. I really love the people, they're great people. And I loved the opportunity and ultimately we were able to work it out. And we found a way where I could live in New York and travel and uh, work with my team through video conference and travel. And that's how I came to land at AT&T. And I'm so grateful because I feel like I was one of the earlier people from advertising to break out of the traditional advertising path. Yeah. I'm dying to ask you about your sabbatical, but maybe we'll do that at the end. I want to get into your role at AT&T. So you had this great brief, you know, and the headhunter spotted it. The company needed someone like you. You went in with that very inspiring brief. Mm -hmm. You've been there almost five years. Your job scope just got bigger. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a bit about what do you do? You know, what is your work and how are you measured? Yes. Well, I mean, on, pa on paper, I have a marketing services organization. What I, what I love about AT&T is its scope and scale. Um, it obviously, its roots are as a utility, but it is a brand that is in the palm of your hand and uh, is delivers something that has never been more important. And we felt that during COVID, um, connectivity and communications are our lifeblood. So I love being in a, working on a brand that is so important in our lives. Um, I look after a team of marketing services experts. We have everything from the sponsorships portfolio. I steward one of the largest media budgets. I have a brilliant brand strategy and naming an architecture team. We helped name the new company we acquired, Warner Media, from Time Warner to Warner Media. Um, uh, and I have a huge advertising team who create um, and develop and produce all of the advertising. So it's a it's a wonderful remit. Um, that's what it looks like on paper. In truth, my job, I think, is to uh, to remind us all at AT and T that um, that there is still power in our purpose. Our purpose is to create connection, create connection with each other, um, with the what we need to thrive in our lives, and with the experiences and stories that we enjoy. But we're a telecoms company and we're in fierce retail wars every day. And we often find ourselves retreating to the classic telecoms playbooks, prices and devices and promotions. 
And I think in particular, COVID-19 reminded us that when we tell the stories of how we help, how we connect uh, across such a wide spectrum of audiences from kids trying to do distance learning, from parents, from first responders, doctors and nurses, um, setting up the connectivity on the, the naval ships that came into LA and to New York. Um, when we tell those stories of connection, we actually uh, are much more effective at driving our business. And so I'm kind of the counterweight to the classic product marketers. And so we have an interesting dynamic uh, where I think really my, my role is to constantly remind us that brand sells too. It just sells over the mid to the long term, but you need it for long term business health. How do you make that sale? Are you using data? Are you using strategy? Are you using your competitive set? Because this is an attention many CMOs have. Yes. Right? Because left on, uh, you know, you can go down the performance marketing road and, and put all of your money there because it is yes. more easy to measure. So how do you do that? Yes. Um, I think, first of all, you have to step up and own that belief and champion that belief. So I've I've asked all of my team to, to remember that they are champions for that way of going to market. Um, it's really important to stand up and be counted. Um, secondly, data has been our friend. There is actually an extraordinary array of data from particularly the IPA and the Can Lion, and I think you have a ton yourself mm -hmm, I do. on my long list to come and talk to you about it. Um, so we have we have many other industries and categories where you prove that you need a combination and you can debate the combination and balance of short term price promotion and long term mid term long term brand building. So I brought that in. But you're right. The sale is really hard. So I think what really worked for us was do running our own tests. And so we were able to uh, run a test with our addressable TV platform because we own addressable TV through direct TV. We were able to run a series of tests and we were able to look at various different balances of the two performance and brand and uh, performance and brand in separate silos. And I think having our own data was what was most compelling, but I mean, it's always, it's always hard. We always default. We always fall back to promotion. It is a constant, um, it's, it's just a constant uh, discussion that we have to have. You talked about your purpose and how powerful it is, and you're a champion for that, and your team is. How do you measure your progress on purpose? We measure everything. Uh, and uh, in particular for us, we are a world-famous brand. We're very well known, but we are weak in uh, meaningfulness and uniqueness. So we've been doing a lot of work to try to slowly improve those metrics over time. Uh, and we've been seeing the progress. Um, we could do more. We'd, I don't believe we spend enough on brand, um, but uh, we're slowly getting there. And, uh, and I think we've realized over certainly the past few months that um, although we've been on paper doing the right thing with, you know, often very famous advertising that uh, has captured America's imagination that talks about price promotion and device, 
we haven't necessarily clarified in our audience's mind the value of the brand. And actually, if you go out and do some uh, just some qualitative work, you'll realize that uh, our customers actually find it difficult often to describe who we are. And I think that was a wake up call for us. Um, they couldn't describe us much beyond, you know, you're a, you're a classic kind of corporation. And yeah, I know that you deliver wireless. And so I think uh, hearing back from our customers and understanding that we needed to create more dimension and that we needed to remind our customers why we're here and what we do um, uh, is really important. And I will actually say COVID-19 has, uh, has been a great use case for us because we switched all of our advertising to what you would call brand, I'm air quoting, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for those on air, brand. And and we've seen the results, and and you know I think that's uh, they say never let a crisis a good crisis go to waste. I think it forced us to act differently, and that was one of the benefits of this crisis. Yeah, you've had a lot of a lot of great work out there. You've been very productive, you and your team, over the last twelve weeks. Yeah. It's been remarkable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fiona, I, I just feel like we could go another hour, but we're going to have to start wrapping this up. And I'd love love to wrap these up with a bit of a lightning round to get your perspective okay. on some issues and get to know you a bit better. What's the best ad you've ever made? The best ad I've ever made. Oh my goodness. Mm, so many people to disappoint. <laughs> I think it, I don't know that it's, it's famous enough for everyone to remember, but I think it has to be the, the GE work that we did. Oh my God, with Joe Picker. And uh, it was about, there was a famous one, which was um, Clean Coal, which uh, featured all of these supermodels in a coal mine. I love that one because that was a hard one to sell. <laughs> <laughs> and Joe's a famous director. He did remarkable work in that yes. series of ads. What's the worst ad you've ever made? Oh, Oh. You'd rather not say, or you? <laughs> no, 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 no! I'm just cringing. I'm thinking about them. I made some pretty bad ads for Roche Pharmaceuticals European Evening Primrose Oil account in the UK. <laughs> Ouch! You would never have seen them, but yeah, it was pharma not at its best. Got it. Okay, you don't have to say anymore. So, the favorite show on HBO for you right now? Favorite show on HBO? Um, I love Westworld. I'm slightly obsessed with sci-fi. I love, love science fiction. And um, I love that show. I love that show because um, I knew of the original movie and I just love the meta. As a, as a literature major, I love how meta it is, world upon world upon world. One last question before we wrap it up. What do you think the future of brand purpose is? Oh, it's like the biggest question in the world. Purpose is power and purpose is a way to growth and perhaps the only way to business growth for businesses these days. And it is a false distinction to distinguish between profits and purpose. I, I believe in the multi-stakeholder model and I believe in companies doing good and purpose gives you the compass for that. Who would you like to hear in the CMO podcast? You know who I'm kind of um, fascinated by because I haven't met her, Danielle Danielle Lee, who was at Spotify and then I think went has gone to be chief fan officer of the NBA. 
Okay, we'll make it happen. That's a good one. Yeah, I don't know her, um, but I would love to. I would love to hear from her. Two extraordinary brands. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. We'll work on it. Fiona, this has been marvelous. Thank you for taking some of your late Friday afternoon uh, to be with me and our listeners. It was. Uh, it was just. It was a. I, I didn't follow my outline. The chat was so good. Thank you again. Thank you. That was my conversation with Fiona Carter. I loved her perspective on her role that comes from her work on the ad agency side and the client side. She has an extremely holistic view of her job and her work and her team. And I loved how she and her company are stepping up in this crisis to do remarkable things with their scale and their reach. I can't wait to see what she does at Goldman Sachs. And we need to get her back on the CMO podcast after she's in the saddle at Goldman Sachs as its first ever CMO. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.